Good morning. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning on this beautiful Sunday. It's been an amazing weekend for the sun, and uh, I was quite happy to get outside yesterday and uh, do some gardening in the beautiful weather that we're having. And did you vote as well? I did. Um, first time I voted in a Canberra election because I've only been living here a couple of years. And, uh, look, I had no idea what was going on, to be honest, but I went in there and did my duty, and uh, they're still counting the votes now. Uh, but hopefully we'll reach a decision on that soon. But, of course, today we are here to talk about science rather than politics, uh, and so we should get right into it. We've got a couple of interviews coming up today, talking to a... Uh, scientist from the University of Melbourne about some of the research she's doing into ceramics and how they affect uh, planes um, and how we might be able to get some fast-flying planes with certain materials. And also another scientist from the University of Queensland who's been looking at uh, polyphenols and uh, we'll discuss what they are and how they can help us in, uh, in our diet and where they might be found. But before we get into all that, uh, let's kick it off with this day in science. Today, of course, being the 21st of October, um, we've got some interesting stories coming out today. Um, one of my favourite stories is uh, about Thomas Edison, and that happened in 1879 when he successfully demonstrated the first durable and commercially practical electric light bulb. Now, he did this in his laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey, and uh, you won't believe how long this one lasted. It lasted just 40 hours before burning out. But, of course, that was a huge advance because they'd been trying so many different things and uh, nothing was really working. Uh, Edison wasn't the first to come up with the idea of electric lighting. Uh, a whole lot of people had worked on that before him and even developed... Uh, several forms of it, uh, but nothing had been developed that was actually practical for use around the house. And this is what, of course, made Edison famous. He didn't invent the light bulb, he just made it useful to us. Uh, the main difficulty that people had was finding a suitable material for the filament. So that's the bit of wire that goes in the middle that lights up, but that, of course, we don't have anymore because we don't have incandescent globes. Uh, it's a completely different system now. But in the first globes, it was the filament that they struggled with. And uh, Edison tested over 6,000 vegetable growths, including things like baywood, boxwood, hickory, cedar, flax, bamboo, all these different things as filament material, but after one and a half years' work and uh, spending $40,000, which is uh, quite a bit of money, I'm not sure whether that's uh, back in that time or, or adjusted for today, but still, $40,000 he spent performing 1,200 experiments, he finally achieved success when he made an incandescent lamp with a filament of carbonised sewing thread. So there you go, something quite fine, um, but being carbonised, of course, it means it can conduct electricity a bit better. And so I think that worked quite well for him. Uh, another This Day in Science, a bit more recent one, back in 2011. Uh, well, back in 2011, we actually changed the idea of uh, what a kilogram is. I don't know if you know, but in uh, the official measure of a kilogram was uh, originally defined by this international prototype, which is a specific metal object, um, and it was a kilo, and that was what defined a kilo. But, of course, nothing uh, stays the same over time, and this... Uh, this metal uh, is losing weight over time, so the kilo was changing, uh, which wasn't that good a thing because uh, we've got to define these things pretty precisely to do all the science around them. And so uh, on this day in 2011, 
the General Conference on Weights and Measures uh, considered a future revision of the definition of the SI units, or International Standard Units. Uh, now, it still required final approval, and implementation is not going to be before 2014. Uh, but basically they're looking at redefining stuff uh, based on certain constants uh, that are invariant in nature. Um, so, of course, the, the SI units that we're talking about are the kilogram, as I mentioned earlier, and also the ampere, which uh, measures electronic current, uh, the kelvin, which is a measure of temperature, and the mole, which is a, a measure of the amount of uh, uh, molecules uh, used in chemistry and there are four standard units and they're going to redefine these in terms of uh, fixed numerical values of Planck's constant, uh, the elementary charge, the Boltzmann constant and Avogadro's constant. So there you go. So that's uh, redefining what we use every day and look I mean it won't affect us but uh, on the molecular level it certainly will make a difference. Um, now, also on this day, there's a few interesting births of uh, people, and uh, we might run through a couple of those. Uh, firstly, uh, Georg Stahl, born 1660 on this day. He was a German physician and chemist who developed the phlogiston theory of combustion. Now, some of you may recognise the name phlogiston. Uh, it's actually uh, a very old uh, idea that came out of... Uh, the 17th century, and uh, Georg Stahl put forward this theory of phlogiston in terms of combustion. Uh, he said that combustible objects were rich in phlogiston, and during combustion this is lost. So basically things like wood had lots of phlogiston inside, uh, but then when it burnt and went down to ash, it obviously weighed less, and, uh, and it couldn't be burnt anymore, and this is because all the phlogiston had been lost. And this uh, theory dominated chemical thought for almost a century. Uh, in fact, uh, Georg even extended the idea to the rusting of materials. He said that metal had phlogiston and rust did not. Uh, of course, we all know now that uh, oxygen, uh, air, is what is involved in the idea of combustion. Uh, but in this theory, it was only indirectly involved. According to Stahl, it was, air was a carrier of phlogiston, uh, and when charcoal burns, phlogiston could be transferred to a metal ore, which then converts to metal. Now, at times, uh, Stahl also believed in alchemy and animism, so he certainly had some interesting views, uh, but he was a bit of a rational scientist too. But, of course, now we know that the theory of phlogiston is uh, a little bit bogus, but still an interesting theory to think about nonetheless. Uh, back in 1911 on this day was the birth of uh, American food scientist William Mitchell. Uh, now, he invented some uh, foods which uh, are pretty uh, common American foods. You might not have heard of them. There's Cool Whip, uh, the orange drink mix Tang, which is like a powdered uh, cordial type thing, uh, Quick Set Jello Gelatin or Jelly, um, and also Pop Rocks Candy. Now, this is one of my favourite inventions is Pop Rocks Candy. Uh, and uh, it's an amazing little uh, invention that was actually uh, d an accidental discovery. Uh, Mitchell was experimenting to produce an instant soft drink, uh, but instead produced pop rocks. And the way it's done is uh, you heat up a whole bunch of sugar or, or hard, hard candy, and um, when it's in its liquid form, you put it under high pressure, about 600 psi, at a temperature of 150 degrees. And then you dissolve carbon dioxide inside the candy. Uh, and so you've got all these bubbles of carbon dioxide which are under high, high pressure. You know, 600 psi is, is um, 
what's that? That's about or twenty times the pressure of your car tire. Um, so that's pretty high pressure in there, and. Uh, and then as it cools down, it traps these bubbles of carbon dioxide in the candy. Uh, now, when it uh, then is placed in your mouth, your mouth and your saliva starts to dissolve the sugar of the hard candy, and suddenly these bursts of carbon dioxide come out, and you get that pop or that little explosion in your mouth from Pop Rocks. So a crazy little invention there. Um, accidental discovery by William Mitchell. Uh, also bought on this day in 1914, Samuel Alderson an American physicist and engineer who invented, of all things, the crash test dummy, uh, which was used to test the safety of cars, parachutes and other devices. From the 1930s, when the safety of cars during a crash was tested, they actually used cadavers, uh, which, you know, is a bit gory, a bit horrible. Uh, But then uh, Alderson decided, you know, maybe we should stick a a dummy that just looks like a person in there. Um, And so he produced a dummy, uh, which he called the VIP, and that was built specifically for car testing. So it had built-in instruments for collecting a whole range of different data uh, in 1968. And uh, it had articulated joints with dimensions and weight distri- distributions like an average person. Uh, interestingly, his company later also made uh, medical phantoms uh, for simulations such as synthetic wounds that oozed mock blood. There you go, not only making uh, crash test dummies, but making it even more realistic with mock blood to come through there. Crazy stuff. Um, And on this day in 1833, possibly one of the most famous scientists, but uh, not many people would know what he actually did in science, is Alfred Nobel. Now, he's a Swedish chemist uh, who probably is now most well-known for the Nobel Prizes. Uh, But back in the day when he was actually doing his science, he developed um, dynamite. Uh, He followed in his father's footsteps, who was also uh, an explosive scientist, and... uh, in 1866, invented a safe and manageable form of nitroglycerin, which he called dynamite. Uh, he also later invented smokeless gunpowder and uh, gel ignite, and uh, helped to create an industrial empire manufacturing this, and amassed a huge fortune from it. Um, but he was a pacifist at heart, and uh, Nobel one day uh, actually read in a French newspaper, it was in 1888 after his brother died, uh, they, uh, the French newspaper mistakenly ran an obituary for Alfred instead, and they called him a merchant of death, which I think is absolutely horrible to read that in your own obituary. Well, reading your own obituary first is a bit strange, uh, but to be called a merchant of death uh, is pretty horrible. And so not wanting to go down in history with such a horrible epitaph, uh, Nobel created a will, which actually ended up shocking his relatives because he told no one about it while he wrote it. Uh, but luckily, uh, it all came through. And so that, through his will and his fortune, he uh, established the Nobel Fund uh, for the Nobel Prizes, uh, which were first awarded in 1901. Uh, and awarded to areas such as physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature and peace. Uh, They also instituted a sixth prize in 1969 for economics, which was instituted in his honour. But, yeah, still going today from uh, Nobel's uh, will, uh, wanting to not be known for dynamite, but wanting to be known for much more uh, noble purposes if you'll forgive that terrible pun and you're listening to fuzzy logic on 2XX 98.3 fm community radio 
Now, being a Canberran, I'm sure uh, many of you are used to making that trip down to Sydney, you know, that three-hour drive and you, you go all the way to Sydney for, for special events and concerts and that sort of thing, or, you know, maybe you want a nice weekend out somewhere or something like that. But imagine if in just two hours you weren't in somewhere like Sydney, but you were in, oh, I don't know, London or Spain or just round the other side of the world. Well, that's an option with new high-speed planes that are being developed and uh, certainly would be amazing to fly over there. But there's a lot of science involved in these planes. And to talk about one area of that science, I've got with me today Dr Carolina Tallon, uh, who's from the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Uh, good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, thanks. It's, it's great to have you on Fuzzy Logic. Now, uh, Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> no worries. Now, you're a, uh, a material scientist, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so what, what, what is a material scientist? You're obviously looking at uh, fabric material and that sort of thing. Yeah, so what we, what we try to do is try, we are working on a multidisciplinary team so we try to advise which type of materials will be better for several parts of several aircrafts. And yeah, so at the moment we are focusing in a hypersonic vehicle that is going to be doing what you were saying, trying to go from here to London or to Spain in two hours. So we are trying to work in the ceramics parts of these rockets of this plane, as you want to call it. Yeah, okay. So... Uh, what, are, what are the limits to, like, current planes? Like, obviously, current Boeing 747s and those sorts of things don't go fast enough. But if we could get those planes going fast enough, why can't they just have the, the metal that we currently have on there? Um, the problem, Roderick, is that um, the, the planes that we have at the moment, they fly really, really fast and they are fantastic. And actually, some of the planes that we have, they use ceramics. The thing is, if you want to go to hypersonic speeds, that is five or eight times the speed of sound, that is the speed that it will let you do these super, super fast trips, you are going to go so, so, so fast that parts of the plane are going to get extremely, extremely hot because of the speed. And these parts are, for example, the, the nose, the, the front part of the plane, or maybe the front part of the wings, are going to get maybe about 3,000 degrees. And at those temperatures, most of the metals are going to get softened. They are going to start getting close to melting. And some others that they are going to be a little more resistant. The performance at that temperature is going to be a little more restricted. So this is why it's not that good. I'm not saying that we're going to use metals because part of, the, of that hypersonic plane is going to require metals. But for certain bits, we are going to need to have something else. Okay, so it's it's the bits that are actually uh, coming in in contact with the the air first, I suppose, and, and breaking through yeah. that are get, get heated up the most. Yes, that's right. That's right. So for that specific parts, we are looking in our team. We are looking through a specific type of materials that they are called ultra high temperature ceramics. That there is a specific type of ceramic materials. They are similar to what you have your maybe your coffee right now in the mug. Yeah. But like a very special type of ceramics that the melting point is about 3,000 degrees and they exceed really, really good properties at high temperature. Okay. So why, why have you chosen uh, ceramics? Why, why are they so good at, at taking that heat? Um, these 
part of the lecture of the material itself, uh, we start getting into too much uh, chemistry. Um, we have these materials that they are kind of porites, carbides, or something like that. They have a very strong covalent bond between the different atoms that make them really, really strong at high temperatures and really, really suitable for this application. Okay. Um so you found uh, the, the right material in ceramics, uh, but that's not all that's special about your technique, is it? No, it's, that's right. That's totally right. So the, the thing is, um, most part of, I mean, we are not the first one realizing that, you know, this group of materials are the best for this application. That's right, because they are groups in NASA and in the uh, European Agency working on that too. Yeah. But what we are doing here in Australia, because we are trying to develop similar capabilities here in Australia, is uh, I am working in a technique to try to make these materials that they are slightly stronger in a cheaper way, easier way. For example, um, sorry, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all. For example, um, the problem is that this uh, front part of the rocket, like the nose, if you want to call it, or this front part of the wings need to have like a very complex shape if you want to call it yeah. so you, have, you have to have certain angles certain dimensions and stuff like that and with the current technology because these materials are so 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 strong you just basically press them just put the powder press them with very very high temperature and very very high pressure and you have like a block and then you machine the part that you need out of that block and it's very expensive and it takes very long time and at the end the materials could get a little damaged. Yeah. While with the technique that I'm developing you can just imagine like you, you used to play with clay when you were little or something like that. I just kind of mold the component that I want. I control the interparticle forces with some chemicals and some other side of the chemistry and then what I do is I shape, for example, if we need the nose of the rocket or we need the nose of the plane, I kind of shape directly that nose. So we cut out all the machining and also because the particles are going to be much closer, the overall properties of the materials are stronger. Okay, okay. So yeah, so you're making it a whole lot easier by being able to yeah. mold it into the right shape. Which... Yeah. Yeah. So I like to think about it like um, when you go to the beach, you want to make a sandcastle and you just press the sand all together to have a castle. You have to press very, very strong yeah. to get that shape. While, as you know, you put a little of water in the sand and then you put it inside your bucket and you flip it over. Actually, the shape is much nicer. Yeah. You have to put that much effort and actually it's stronger, right? It's just a little longer. Yeah. So basically that's the same idea. <laughs> so you're just spending all day making sandcastles, uh, which is going to help us... That's what I'm Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. And are there other applications for the use of um, these ceramics? Yeah, there is a whole lot of application for ceramics in general. For, for this particular type of ceramics, most of the time it's for going to very high temperatures. So, for example, also for turbines, Blades, 
they are very, very useful in, in many applications apart from what everybody's familiar with, you know, the tiles in the bathroom and the marks on the plates. So there is like a whole lot of things out there that they are made out of ceramics. Yeah, okay. Oh, that sounds absolutely fantastic. And uh, where where are you at the development stage of this at the moment? Are we are we expecting to see these ceramics going on to, to planes in the near future, or are you still trying to test to get that, that ultimately perfect material? Yes, yeah, so we, we are still, obviously, we're still developing and working very hard, but we are a little closer than maybe some of the people think. Uh, for example, I have been testing the components that I've been making at very, very high temperature, like 3,400 degrees or higher, and the materials are showing very good behavior, like they don't break, they hold together, they keep the geometry. And without getting into too much detail, uh, the project that I'm working on is um, within the Defense Materials Technology Center, and includes like several organizations across Australia to develop this capability. We have milestones and right now we are testing like small scales. So we will be testing the materials at the end of 2014. And right now we have been testing the design, part of the team is testing the design. So obviously I'm not building a plane for all of us to travel to Spain, for example, to <laughs> or anything like that. But we are working actually right now on a small scale and we have launches, a schedule, and stuff like that, so it's slightly closer than it looks like. I reckon maybe 20, 30 years, yeah. it's slightly closer. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And one final question for you. How do you test stuff at 7,400 degrees? How do you get something that hot? Yeah, 7,400 degrees is um, it's very, very high temperature. So what we have is the other part of the team, uh, DSTO, they have developed a beautiful oxyacetylene torch. That sounds really fancy. So basically imagine that it's kind of heating up like with a torch. Yeah. Directly your material. So what, what we control is control the heat flux and we measure the temperature. So yeah, it was actually, I don't know why we always have this feeling about destructive testing that is so cool. But yeah, it was really, really <laughs> nice to see the flame on the material, the material hold together. Yeah. When I finish, I call my boss. In the, uh, so yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I suppose it's hard to imagine that you know we're recreating these temperatures with uh, with flames, but these temperatures are going to be created on these these uh, materials just by the air up in the sky because these planes are going so fast. Exactly, and, and the thing is, we're not going to have like the complete picture until we actually launch it. Yeah. You know, but at the moment we try to replicate as much as we can, the most of the artists that we can imagine right now, and to try to test it in a really scientific way and to be sure that they are going ahead. And But there, there will be like a lot, a lot of testing done before anything get into a plane, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, of course, there's always lots of testing to be done in any scientific yeah. work, I think. Um, but, yeah, no, it sounds absolutely fascinating stuff. And, uh, look, thanks very much for joining us this morning, Carolina. Thank you so much for the invitation. I hope that, you know, the people are happy to see that all these futuristic things are slightly closer than we think. Yeah. My mum is really thrilled with ideas. So. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Good. Yeah, well, you keep on making those sandcastles in the lab, and uh, hopefully we'll be on those those planes too. Thanks very much, Carolina. And that was Dr. Carolina Tallon uh, from the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Melbourne. 
You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Community Radio, tuned into 98.3 on the FM dial here in Canberra, or maybe you're listening online at 2XXFM.org.au. Uh, don't forget we're on Facebook too, Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Uh, look us up, and uh, if you've got a question about anything that's happening on today's show, post it on there, and we can... Try and answer it as best we can. I can't make any guarantees, of course, but I will try my best for you. Uh, we're just about to have a chat to another scientist um, about something that, look, I mean, probably most people know fruit and vegetables are good for you. Um, and that, that's pretty well known, widespread. We've got to eat lots of them. Uh, but a new study is helping show how they help maintain our gut health and also possibly help keep away cancer too. Uh, joining me to talk about it is uh, Dr. Annalene Paracci from the University of Queensland. Good morning, Annalene. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thanks. I'm well. Now, the first question I'm going to ask you today is um, one thing that's been, been big in your research from what I've read is black carrots. Now, what is a black carrot? I've never seen one before. Okay. Black carrots are actually the original carrot. That's what carrots originally are. So yeah, you're telling very... me carrots were an orange to start with? No, they weren't. Wow. Um, Because orange is the uh, the colour for for the Netherlands, isn't it? That's right. They they, yeah. they have that horrible. It just literally became the more popular carrot. <laughs> um, however, there are parts in Asia, parts of um, Eastern Europe that still black carrots um, are quite popular as well. Okay, okay. Do, do you see them often in Australia? Like I haven't noticed them down Woolies. Yeah, you can get them. They're, there's a bit of a resurgence in their popularity because um, they are extremely high in certain anthos like, like certain polyphenols and antioxidants. You can get them in leaves and cold um, at times because it is seasonal. Um, local farmers market. So when I was down in Melbourne last week, I actually just got a pack of black carrots from cold. Oh. Um, but yeah, they are out there. You just have to be a all right. Well, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out for them uh, because they are pretty awesome. And you mentioned that they're really good because they're high in uh, polyphenols, and that's that's what your research has been foc- focusing on—the polyphenols in in these sorts of fruits and veg. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So, what's so good about a polyphenol? Okay. Well, polyphenols uh, they kind of like antioxidant type compounds. So when I say that. Means that they're not 100 percent of an antioxidant, but antioxidants have a particular function in the body. Um, polyphenols do the exact same role as an antioxidant um, in the prevention of cell damage, um, decreasing you know, the risk of disease, fighting off different um, negative mechanisms in the body. But polyphenols are also involved in a whole host of other activities. They basically add immunity to your immune system, if I can use that sort of terminology. Um, so they're really potent. 
Okay, so how do they add immunity? So are they, are they making uh, more uh, white blood cells or, or something along those lines? Okay, so say in the case of, say, a traditional antioxidant like vitamin C, if we don't have vitamin C in our diet, we'll, you know, we'll get cold, we'll get flus, we'll get scurvy, things like that. If you don't have a particular polyphenol in your diet, it won't result in you getting a sickness or a disease. However, if you do have a diet that's full of polyphenols, which you get from fruits and veggies, what it does is it basically strengthens the, the action of vitamin C. So you're even more... Um, you're even less susceptible to getting the cold or scurvy or something like that. Okay. Um, so it strengthens the action of um, other nutrients in the body. Yeah, so it's making good things better. That's exactly yeah. it, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Now, these polyphenols, they're not just found in black carrots, are they? No. So, I mean, you get polyphenols, polyphenolic compounds, you get them pretty much every type of fruit and vegetable out there. There are, there are a whole range of them. There's hundreds of these different compounds. Um, you know, some of them you can get it in. Coffee beans are extremely high in chlorogenic acid, which is a type of polyphenol. Apples, one of the most common mundane fruits in the world, uh, one of the highest, have one of the highest contents of another type of polyphenol, my black carrots. Um, so everyone knows about blueberries. We all know about red wine and how it's so good for us. It's heavily promoted, decreasing, you know, cholesterol and improving heart health. Well, that's due to a compound called anthocyanins. Anthocyanins is a, is, is a polyphenol that is distinctly purple by nature, um, and it's what gives red grapes its color. It's what gives plums the, the purple on the skin. It gives cherries or blueberries that blue color, so you can see the presence of the anthocyanins because of its intense coloration. Now, in the case of the black carrots, which is why I use them, um, they are one of the highest sources in the human diet. Um, it's about 20, 30 times higher in anthocyanins than things like um, red wine. Okay, so, blueberries, things like that. so it's just a really, really, really concentrated content of these compounds in black carrots. So if I wanted to get the same level of polyphenols, I'd have to drink a lot of red wine rather than just one <laughs> black carrot. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, um, and uh, the, the way we uh, take in these polyphenols, it's all got to do with the, um, the fibre in the, in the vegetable. Is that right? That's right. So for us traditionally, and you can go look this up in any textbook, fiber has always been thought of as just being involved in basically cleaning out our bowel. Um, humans cannot digest fiber. We don't have, like cows, you know, ruminants, they have four stomachs, so they've got a really intense digestive system. Plus they've also got um, enzymes um, that are actually able to break down plants fiber. Humans cannot do it. So basically, fiber chugs its way through our digestive tract, pushing all the food through, cleaning out, basically it works as a scourer, cleaning out our bowels, um, and that we get rid of when we go to the toilet. That's what we've always thought fiber did. That was fiber's key role, and that was what it did. Um, (laughs) That's where my research kind of, I've always thought that as well. Um, However, I kind of found it really it was a total shock to our system, to our, to our way of thinking, when we found that fiber actually is able to traffic or smuggle these polyphenolic compounds safely through the 
stomach through the small intestine to the colon. And once it gets there, um, gut bacteria, our, you know, ferment the fiber so it's easy to pass out of the body. And during that process, are actually able to release um, some of the compounds. Now, um, when it's released, these compounds have the ability to have a protective effect against um, the development of certain health conditions, um, possibly including things like colon cancer. Okay. So how can we try and make sure we get more fibre-bound polyphenols in our diet? <laughs> well, any time you eat, definitely eating whole fruits and vegetables. I mean, you know, nutritionists always promote eat lots of fruits and veggies. Now we actually know there's a lot more fruits and veggies than just, you know, eating them for health. This is actually what they're doing. Mm. Um, when we chew up food, fruits and vegetables in our mouth or when we make a puree, um, if, if anyone has a chance to go onto Fresh Science, they'll see some of the photographs of my purees that are made with the black carrots. Um, I just did that in a blender, but anything where you keep the fiber in it. So, say for example, when you're doing juicing, the juice comes out one end, the pulp goes out the other end. Um, sure, that juice has got, you know, quite a, a substantial amount of nutrition in it. However, fiber, which is not just about cleaner, has up to 80% of antioxidants down to that fibrous material. Wow. Um, so... It is really, it has quite a lot of polyphenols down to the fiber, and if we throw all that fiber out, we're losing it. So, you know, having purees, eating whole fruits and vegetables, um, whether it be cooked or steamed, um, and if you do juice, try and get that pulp in something else, maybe stir a little bit back through, um, use it in soups, use it in casseroles, um, but don't actually get rid of it. Don't just throw it out of the compost bin. Yeah. Actually use it in something. That's right. Well, I always feel like that's such a waste when you end up with all this, this powdery stuff left over from the juice. Um, and, and you mentioned, like, eating whole fruit and veg. Does it make a difference if, if you end up steaming it or anything like that to cook it? Well, steaming, I mean, if heat treatment does affect certain nutrients. So certain nutrients don't like steam. They don't like any sort of heat. Anthocyanins is one of them. They're, they're very heat susceptible. However, if you can see purple, they're still there. If it's gone completely colorless, they're gone. They're dead. They're yeah. Gone. But if you can still see purple, which you'll still see if you see some purple carrots, or uh, you'll still see that purple coloration. You know the presence. You don't have to be a scientist to work this out. You know that those compounds are still there. Um, there are other um, polyphenols that actually like heat. So things like carotene that you get in orange carrots. Um, lycopene that gives tomatoes its orange, uh, its red color. Now those type of polyphenols actually really like heat. So in order for them to be released, they have to be heated up um, so that the fatty coating around the plant cell actually melts and so these compounds can actually be released. So they're fat soluble. So certain things like um, heat, certain things don't like heat, take a message, eat color and eat either raw or steamed together and you covered all your bases. Well, that sounds like a fantastic health tip on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, and I think I'm going to have to head down to the shops and try and find some of these purple carrots um, because not only uh, are they better for me, but they look awesome too. I just want to serve them up in a meal to, to, put, to change people's perceptions. They're great. Yeah, they're quite an intense colour purple. I've actually made carrot cake with them. And it's oh. the most amazing. You cut a slice of it and you just see, you know, the walnuts 
And, and it's a healthy carrot cake too. I think I've got my Sunday afternoon planned now. I'm going home <laughs> to make purple carrot cake. Yeah, give it a go. Awesome. awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Annalie, and uh, sharing your uh, research on the, the purple carrot and polyphenols. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thanks, Annalie. Uh, that was Dr. Annalie Padacci from the University of Queensland talking about her research into carrots and polyphenols. And uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM. Broderick Matthews here with you on this Sunday. And we've been talking uh, lots of different science today. We had a look at uh, some material scientists, uh, Dr. Carolina Tallon and her work looking at ceramics to go on those new fast jets that will be taking us from Sydney to London in uh, about two hours, which sounds amazing. And before we had Dr. Annalene Padacci from the University of Queensland, uh, and uh, she was talking about black carrots and polyphenols. And in fact, I completely forgot, but Annalene had a limerick for us, um, which about her research, which she wrote uh, earlier this week and uh, passed it on to me. So I'm going to read it out now and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy Annalene's bit of poetry. It's uh, about the polyphenols. It says, Even though our stomach is not strong enough for fibre digesting, we've discovered fibre is excellent for antioxidant trafficking. It not only cleans out our gut in creating in creation of poo that we lose down the loo, but also delivers antioxidants to the colon to prevent cancer from developing. Fantastic. Look, I don't know why we did a whole interview about it. We could have summarised it in that limerick right there and then. Maybe that's what we need to do for all science, is just summarise it in limerick form. I think that would work much, much better. <laughs> well, earlier today we were talking about this day in science and saying that this day is actually the birth of um, Alfred Nobel, who left heaps of money to the Nobel Prizes. And so I thought I'd briefly outline some of the winners of the Nobel Prize this year. Um, this because they've just been awarded over the past week in the, the different areas, and we might have a look at the scientific ones, you know, chemistry, medicine, and physics. Uh, the Chemistry Nobel Prize this year went to uh, a couple of scientists from the United States, Robert Lefkowitz and Brian Kubilka, for identifying a class of cell receptor which yields vital insights into how the body works at the molecular level. Uh, they discovered a key component of cells called G-protein-coupled receptors and mapped how they work. Now, G-protein-coupled receptors, or GPCRs, are known to influence everything from sight, smell and taste to blood pressure, pain tolerance and metabolism, and they tell the insides of cells about conditions on the outside of their protective plasma membranes. You know, this explains how things like cardiac cells, the cells in your heart, know to raise the heart rate when we're startled. And that's just one example of how they work. And uh, also medications achieve their effect through GPCRs as well. Uh, so understanding the receptors provides the tools for better drugs with fewer side effects. And this is why these two scientists have been awarded the Nobel Prize in chemistry this year. So that's the Chemistry Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize for Medicine uh, has been awarded to Shinya Yamanaka of Japan and John Gordon of Britain for their work in cell programming, uh, basically looking at stem cells and uh, 
how we can use them. Uh, stem cells are our precursor cells in our body that they change into to different types of cells. They can almost be anything when they grow up, uh, which is what you tell all young children. Um, but stem cells can actually do that, uh, and they can differentiate into the various organs of the body. Uh, but what these scientists have found is that adult cells can be transformed back into that infant state. So we can go from being an adult cell or a, or a specific type cell back into the stem cell state. And this is a key ingredient in uh, regenerative medicine. Uh, the Nobel jury said that their findings revolutionised our understanding of how cells and organisms develop. By reprogramming human cells, scientists have created new opportunities to study diseases and develop methods for diagnosis and therapy. Uh, so, amazing stuff, uh, which is uh, really interesting. And uh, among those who acclaimed the award were Britain's uh, Royal Society member, Ian Wilmot, who's the father of Dolly the Clone Sheep, and also a leading ethicist. And he, he's saying that this is now easing the storm about the use of embryonic cells, uh, which I think is great, because often the only place we can source these stem cells from is, is embryos, and that's obviously not... Uh, necessarily uh, approved by all. Um, it's an interesting ethical debate there. Uh, so to be able to change adult cells into stem cells, then we can start taking people's own adult cells and reprogramming them, which will make a huge difference uh, to what is going on uh, in the body. Now, we've also got the Physics Nobel Prize for this year, and uh, this time it has gone to... Uh, scientists Serge Haroche of France and David Wineland of the US for their work in quantum physics that could revolutionise computing. Uh, so they're looking at uh, quantum computing, uh, which is a uh, quantum computer is something that could change everyday lives in this century, uh, you know, in the same radical way that computers did, the classical computer did last century. Uh, it's still a the the supercomputer quantum style is is still a long way off. But uh, this research uh, was pioneering optical experiments, uh, measuring and manipulating individual quantum systems. And uh, the Nobel Physics jury said uh, the groundbreaking methods have enabled this field of research to take the very first steps towards building a new type of superfast computer based on quantum physics. So not necessarily huge development here, but the first uh, baby steps on the way to creating quantum computing. Uh, so that's a, an interesting one there from the Nobel Prizes. Now, I did also promise the IG Nobel Prizes today, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I think I'm going to have to post them on our Facebook. Uh, so you can check them out. Just head to Facebook, like Fuzzy Logic, and uh, you can keep up with all the links and uh, those sorts of things that we post about the show uh, during the week and during the show as well. Um, you can also download today's episode from our podcast, which can be found uh, at the web address fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com, or you can find us on uh, iTunes. Just type in Fuzzy Logic. And I want to leave you with one last bit of research coming out today um, about the Nobel Prizes, and uh, it's saying, uh, according to an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a study has found that the more chocolate people in a country eat, the no more Nobel Prize winners that country produces per capita. 
So very interesting stuff there. You know, flavonoids, antioxidants found in cocoa, green tea, red wine and some fruits, as we were talking about earlier today with aniline, uh, are effective in slowing down or even reversing the reductions in cognitive performance that occur with ageing. And uh, according to this article, since chocolate consumption could hypothetically improve cognitive function, not only in individuals but also in whole populations, the uh, the author wondered whether there could be a correlation between a country's level of chocolate consumption and its population's cognitive function. And they certainly found this correlation. Now, whether it's a true one or not um, uh, is uh, not necessarily causation here, but certainly an interesting study. And uh, I'm going to put it to the test today, I think. I'm going to go home, uh, maybe have some chocolate, and uh, possibly eat a black carrot cake as well. And with all those polyphenols, I think I should be well on my way to a Nobel Prize. Yeah. So they give out prizes, Nobel Prizes for Science Radio? I'm not sure. But anyway... That's enough from me this week. Tune in again next week at 11.30 for more Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. And for now, it's time to hand over to Beyond Zero.